Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you've been around Oasis uh, for a, a few years, you'll know that in 2019 through to 2020, we started a series in the book of John. Now at this point, we're not now pressing play uh, to continue where we kind of stopped in March 2020, but rather we're gonna look at it through a lens of Jesus's invitation in John 10:10, where he says that he's come to bring life to you and to me, uh, whether we're in the room, whether we're online, whether we're watching at a different point, whether we know something of Jesus, when we think we know nothing of Jesus, that he's come in order that we could know life and life in full. And it's that that we want to look at because as we continue in the book of John, what we're going to discover is John begins to paint a picture of what that life in full looks like. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said and Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest of that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple was known to the high priest and came back, spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said that, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answered to the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? 
Then Anna sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid unceremonial cleanliness, uncleanliness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to serve, to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews replied. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did the others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and asked, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner over the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Wonderful. Thank you, Sinead. And good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Rich. Great to be with you this morning to take us through this next part of our series exploring the Gospel of John. Uh, and this morning, I actually want to start with a confession. Uh, and it's a confession that might colour your entire opinion of me for the rest of this talk, uh, leaving you unable to hear a single word that I'm about to say, such as your fury and outrage at what I'm about to admit. And that's this. Last weekend, I took down our Christmas tree. <laughs> I know, I know. We are now in April. If it helps, it was still March at that point. Um, that doesn't help, I know. Um, so why am I admitting uh, to this grievous sin uh, in your presence this morning. Um, it's because until last weekend, it actually still looked quite good. Um, it had been living very happily in our conservatory, no drooping branches, no dropped uh, needles, as full and fine as the day uh, when we went to the Christmas tree farm and collected it and brought it home and put it in pride of place in our house. And then something happened last weekend. Does anyone remember? What happened last weekend? It got warm. It got warm. Uh, and given we've had snow since then, that feels like an awfully long time ago. Um, but in that brief window of short weather last weekend, uh, it was enough to turn my tree from 
luscious green to lifeless brown. Uh, and so finally, at last, it had to go. But the thing is, and this is why I'm starting with this story, uh, in the hope that you're not so outraged you'll continue to listen to me, um, it's because the warm weather didn't kill uh, our Christmas tree. Uh, the truth is, it's been dead since somebody way back in November, yes, November, uh, <laughs> cut it down uh, and put it in uh, a net and loaded it into my car. The warm weather didn't kill uh, our Christmas tree. What it did was reveal the truth of what was always there. Reveal the reality of what was always there. And the passage that we've just heard uh, so wonderfully read out for us by Sinead, the drama of John's telling of Jesus' arrest and his interrogations, does the same thing. It reveals the truth of what's going on in our hearts and the hearts of those caught up in the unfolding events. And I hope it will, uh, if we'll let it this morning by the power of the Spirit at work through the Word, reveal the truth of what is going on in our hearts this morning. And that's been my experience this week uh, as I've come to the text. I hope it can be our experience together. And to do that, we're going to shine the spotlight on the central characters in this scene. Judas, Annas, Peter, Pilate, and finally Jesus, drawing out some specific things about how the truth of what's going on in their hearts is revealed. And so the scene begins with Judas leading representatives from two competing power players in the region, the ruling officials of the religious elite and the military might of the Roman army to arrest Jesus in the quiet of the garden. Judas, who John's already told us way back in chapter 12, used to help himself uh, to the disciples' communal money bag, who the other gospel authors reveal accepted a price of 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus into their hands. What does this chapter reveal about Judas? It reveals a man so lost in his selfish desires, so blinkered by his craving for more, that he can't see all that's offered to him in Jesus. A man with a front row seat to watch Jesus turn water into wine, to multiply loaves and fishes, to heal the sick and calm the seas and raise the dead, trades it all in for what? A handful of silver and a front row seat to watch Jesus be dragged off by a baying mob. Judas is a man whose heart is curved inwards by, among other things, his greed and his desire for more, for material wealth. That's what greed does to us. If we allow it to grow in our hearts, to take root, it blinkers us from seeing the richness of all that there is in life around us, the generosity of our Father. It zeroes us in on that one thing that seems to offer all the answers but only ever leaves us feeling flat. That's Judas. 
And then there's Annas. Annas, who uh, Jesus is taken to first for questioning. Annas, father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas, a former high priest himself, who clearly still holds great influence within the temple leadership. But the way he goes about interrogating Jesus is hugely revealing. See, in Jewish law, the proper way to conduct a trial is to have different witnesses come forward and give testimony. And Annas doesn't do that. Instead, he questions Jesus in private, surrounded by guards who intimidate and assault him for his answers. In fact, it's left to Jesus to uphold the law by reminding them what their job is, to ask those who have heard what Jesus has said, verse 21. Annas is a hypocrite. He claims to be the one upholding Jewish law, but in fact, he's trampling all over it in his desperation to get rid of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus threatens the power that he's built up, the following that Jesus has gathered, the teaching he's given, all of it threatens the cozy clique Annas has built. See, the kingdom Jesus has proclaimed, freedom for the captive, justice for the poor, welcome for the marginalized, the call to lives of holiness that transform the surroundings we're in with the goodness and presence of God, all of that is a threat to Annas and his position and his influence. And at the same time that Annas is interrogating Jesus in the beautifully interwoven narrative that John gives us, we have Peter. Peter, so quick in the garden to draw his sword and defend Jesus, so eager to prove his courage. But even whilst Jesus stands before his interrogators, powerful men with the authority of life and death, and denies nothing about the truth of who he is. What do we see when the spotlight falls on Peter? Peter cowering before some light questioning from the lowliest members of the household, servants and slaves outside the rooms of power. We see Peter deny everything. Peter's bold pronouncements throughout the Gospels, I will lay down my life for you, he declares in John 13. It's shown to be all bluster, no substance. Fear takes such a hold of him in that crunch moment when the one he's left everything behind to follow is facing their darkest moment. Peter is left paralyzed. Mike Reeves writes that our fears are like an ECG machine. They tell us about the state of our hearts, both the good and the bad. In the garden, fear drives Peter to the defense of his friend. And it might have been misguided, but what we see in his actions there is a righteous fear born from love for Jesus that calls him to action. But in the courtyard, we see a man for whom fear has consumed him entirely. It's led him to disown everything he believes in, to deny the one he's left everything to follow. 
And we're left with this portrait of a broken man, huddled around the fire, silent as his best friend is led off to his death. And finally, the spotlight falls on Pilate, the consummate politician, caught between his recognition that the charges against Jesus are completely bogus and his duty to preserve Roman control and authority in the face of opposition from the Jewish leaders and the local people. Time and time again in this chapter and right through chapter 19, Pilate's refrain over and over is that there is no basis for the charge against Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus has done nothing wrong, that what's being done to him is unjust. But despite being the one with the power to do what's right, he washes his hands of the situation and he gives Jesus over to be crucified. As Pilate sees it, he wants justice, he wants peace, but he's not willing to work for it if it means that his life gets a bit more complicated, if it challenges his comfortable status quo. Author and musician Andre Henry uh, puts it like this, to the privileged, peace means keeping a safe distance from the cries of the oppressed. Pilate chooses the false peace of cheap injustice over the true peace of costly integrity and righteousness. Four characters, each flawed, whose hearts are revealed as this story unfolds, who wilt when the heat gets turned up, just like my Christmas tree. For Judas, greed. For Annas, power. For Peter, fear. For Pilate, comfort. And you know, it's easy to read through this passage and look at the failings of these men and disassociate ourselves to think, that would never be me, Lord. If I'd seen the things Judas had seen, I'd never trade it all in for a handful of coins. If I'd risen to the power and position of Annas, I'd never let my craving for more power stop me from seeing the truth when it's right in front of me. If I'd enjoyed the closeness of relationship that Jesus and Peter enjoyed, I'd never let fear shackle me from being there for a friend. If I had the chance to stand for justice, I'd never let my desire for an easy and comfortable life cause me to turn my face away. And yet, I would, I would see the spotlight as I read this passage falls on me too. The spotlight falls on me because I am Judas and Annas and Peter and Pilate. I have tasted and seen the kindness of God in all he's given me 
and yet I've been stingy rather than generous to those in need. I've walked past the homeless man on the street because I was too wrapped up in my own thoughts or in too much of a rush or in too much of a hurry to get out of the rain and the cold. I have hardened my heart to well-meaning and honest and faithful critical feedback, dismissing it as someone else's problem rather than humbling myself and learning from my mistakes. I have let fear stop me from stepping out for Jesus. Whether that's the fear of a friend rejecting my invitation to Alpha, so I never ask, or even the fear of just praying out in a group of friends because I'm worried about what others might think of me, how they might view me and the eloquence with which I pray or the words that I speak. I have stayed silent when I've heard misogynistic or discriminatory or even uh, flat-out racist things being said choosing the false peace of privileged comfort over standing for justice and righteousness, over doing what's right. I am all of these men. When the spotlight falls on me, guys, I can't escape that reality. I cry with Paul in Romans 7, what I want to do, I don't do it. What I hate doing, I do all too often. I can't escape the reality that I'm not yet who I want to be. That just like these men, I'm a man in need of a savior. I am. I'm in need of someone whose heart is revealed through this chapter in a very different way. See, where Judas is greedy, looking out for himself, Jesus is selfless. As an armed mob confronts him, his first thought is the protection of his friends. Verse eight, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. Not selfishly looking out for his own gain, the good shepherd offering himself for the sake of his flock. Where Annas is so concerned with protecting his own power and position, Jesus, the true king of the universe, the author and creator of life itself, the one who flung stars into space and crafted atoms from chaos, humbles himself, takes his father's cup in loving obedience where Peter lets fear overwhelm him, Jesus stands before his captors to boldly assert that he is on the side of truth, yet without a hint of prideful arrogance. Where Pilate gives in to injustice to make his own life more comfortable, Jesus bears the greatest injustice in history, the worst sham trial there has ever been with boundless grace and rock-solid integrity. 
What does this chapter reveal about Jesus' heart when the spotlight falls on him? It reveals one who is utterly selfless, unreservedly humble, unwaveringly just, uncompromisingly loving, but also entirely in control. He goes out into the garden. He protects his disciples. He interrogates even his captors. It's his words that cause the guards to fall back in verse 6 in wonder at who he is. It's revealed in a moment. He reveals himself as the one that I need. But, and this is really important, he doesn't do it by coming to condemn us. He does it by coming to give himself. See, there's one more character introduced at the very end of this chapter, Barabbas. Unlike Jesus, this is an actually guilty man, a bandit, a murderer. Yet when Pilate offers the crowd the chance to free either Jesus or Barabbas. They choose Barabbas instead. And yet in doing so, they give us the most perfect illustration of what it is that Jesus is about to do. Because Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. Bar, son, Abbas, father. So as Pilate releases Barabbas, the guilty son of the father, delivers him over to death. Jesus, the eternal son of the everlasting father. We see a taste of what's about to happen on the cross. The guilty son of the father goes free, while the innocent son of the father bears it all. Jesus stands in Barabbas' place. He hangs on Barabbas' cross. He dies Barabbas' death. And Barabbas is released to new life. And just as I'm Judas and Annas and Peter and Pilate, I'm Barabbas. Because Jesus' invitation for me and for you this morning is to take our place, is to bear in himself all our brokenness, all our failures, all our suffering, all our injustice, every fractured relationship that we find within ourselves and between us and God and between us and others. And it's to carry it to the cross and put it to death there to bear the weight of everything that's gone wrong in our world, everything that tears our hearts and causes us to cry. It's not meant to be like this. And to crucify it in himself, that he might instead offer us new life, resurrection life, life that bursts out of the tomb on Easter morning. His life overflowing with wholeness and mercy and grace, 
the life of the eternal son, uh, as Liam shared with us a couple of weeks ago, delighting in the father through the spirit, poured out life that changes everything. That's the life I need. That's the life I need every day. That's the savior I need when the heat gets turned up on me and the stuff in my life that's just dead wood, brown branches, gets revealed again. That's the life I need that frees me and empowers me to live in a way that doesn't allow greed or power or fear or comfort to rule my decisions to change my no's into yeses, as Sarah encouraged us in worship. That's the life I need to help me every day to choose generosity and to live humbly and to step out boldly and to stand for justice and righteousness. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me and maybe it's just me but maybe it's not maybe you see something of yourself in the characters in this chapter and maybe this morning when you look to Jesus when you see how his heart is revealed in this chapter his generosity and his humility, and his courage, and his integrity, you know that there's some dead wood in your life that needs shifting to. There are some things that you're living with that just aren't the best that God has for you. And this morning, I want you to know that Jesus doesn't come to condemn you. He gives himself for you. Son of the Father, given to bring you into the fullness of the life he has for you. His heart is for you. It's to see you living in the good of all he's won for us on the cross, not settling for second best. Band are going to come back up. I'd like to invite you guys up again. They're going to lead us in a song. And as they do, there's an invitation here for each and every one of us. Whether we would just say we're still looking into this whole Christianity thing, or whether we've been following Jesus for as long as we can remember. It's the question that's just appeared on the screen. What's the dead wood in my life? Because that's an uncomfortable question. I don't, I don't even like asking that question, let alone hearing that question asked to me. But as we look to Jesus again, as we consider the one who goes to the cross, as we allow him to meet with us and expose the things in our hearts that need exposing, the invitation is to know he doesn't bring condemnation. He invites us to receive again his new life to those areas, his resurrection life. He comes to fill us with his spirit to empower us to live out that life in each of our unique situations and circumstances. He's done it all 
on the cross. He's taken it all. And he gives and he gives and he gives of himself that we might know and enjoy the goodness he has for us. This is who Jesus is this morning. He is for you. He is for you.